uh, Psalm 36. And I, I have never have any idea as to what the songs are going to be, have no, uh, no idea until I'm here like you're here. But um, I'll let you in on a little secret. I was, uh, because of it being spring break and a smaller crowd and so on, I was thinking about just doing something off the cuff sitting there. I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'm wrestling in my mind and I'm flipping through the Scripture. And I thought, well, I'll just change direction, smaller crowd. We'll, uh, we'll do something a little bit different. Until I heard the last song, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. The text and title that I had emailed Gary Weir, who puts all this information on the Internet, was... Um, God's steadfast love, better than unconditional. And Psalm 36, in verses 5 through 10. Uh, I was reared in a wonderful, warm, God-centered, God-fearing home by terrific mom and dad. I, I don't think I could have had a better upbringing. don't think that, that I could have been reared in a better environment. And so some of you are probably saying, well, why did you turn out like you did? Um, I'm not sure why. Uh, but just a terrific environment. I don't know that I ever picked this up from my parents, but throughout my uh, my junior high or middle middle uh, school years, my senior high years, my college years, and well into my into my twenties, um, I had this idea that God was chronically displeased with me, and I could remember standing in an on deck circle in high school baseball games, swinging a bat and looking at the pitcher. And in my mind, praying, oh God, please don't let me embarrass myself. And some of you who may have grown up playing baseball, you know, you had all these these homespun sayings. If you had men on base, it was ducks on the pond. Jeff, come on, there's ducks on the pond. Just added to my pressure. And so I'm, I'm praying in my mind, oh God, please help me. God, please don't let me embarrass myself. And immediately in that same vein of thought, I'm thinking, but I know you won't because, and I would answer my own question. I didn't have a tulip growing up. If you know anything about Calvinism and the flower associated with Calvinism being a tulip, I had a daisy. Now he loves me and now he doesn't. Now he likes me and now he doesn't. Now he's for me and now he isn't. I had this perpetual sense of, of, of God not loving me as firmly and as fully and as richly and as profoundly as other people seem to understand that. It's not easy to communicate the love of God, because it's such a vast theme, because it's so incomprehensible, because it's so difficult for finite human beings like us to really get our minds around the richness, the profundity, the tenacity with which God loves His people. And yet, in our culture today, as it is in every generation, love is a very popular theme. Uh, It frequently works its way into songs of various genres. It works its way into movies and sitcoms and some twisted, perverted forms even find it, find their way into alleged um, reality shows. And uh, if you were to, to go to Amazon.com and to search their inventory, you would be impressed that in a matter of seconds, your hit on the word love, your query on the word love would respond with 497 thousand titles that they have at their disposal. So it's it's a massive theme, and it's a massive theme in the Scripture as well because it covers such a wide variety of ideas, emotions, and feelings. And how would you ever begin to wrestle with and get a handle on or grasp of this idea of God's love for you? One of the ways that we do that is we, we condense this massive theme 
to a word, uh, an adjective, if you will, unconditional. That is, God's love is without constraint, it's without boundary, it's without qualification, and so on. And not to debunk that idea, but I want to suggest to you this evening from Psalm 36, that as rich and full as that concept is, that God's love for you is unconditional, it pales into significance as to what the Scripture really teaches. God's love is better than unconditional. It's far deeper, far higher, far more measureless in its proportion. It's a good word, but it's not the best word because unconditional has this idea of, of without qualification, a, a, a positive regard without constraint. And yet the word unconditional is too pale, too anemic, too, um, too weak and frail and thin to sustain the idea of how much God loves you as His people. His love is better than unconditional because it's generous, because it's restorative, because it's transformative, because it's healing, because it's salvific, it's redemptive. And in Psalm 36, David gives in a few compressed verses some hints and some ideas about the magnitude of God's love for you as His people. Let me give you a little bit of a context some of the psalms set in, in bold relief and in, in, a, in a stark contrast to competing ideas or two competing themes. And such is the case in Psalm 36. The opening verses describe um, the worst uh, about humanity. It describes a, a dark sinfulness, a bold, stubborn rebellion, a contumacious spirit, a, a, a stubborn resistance to the will of God and the ways of God. In fact, one of the most piercing statements about fallen humanity comes in the opening verses of Psalm 36 where it says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. In verse 2, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and to do good. In verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And so here is the, the very picture of a fallen person whose desires and values are set upon pleasing themselves and self-gratification. In fact, the basis or, or the nature of their inspiration for life comes out of their own rebellious heart and desires. No sense of fear, no sense of reverence, no sense of dread, but rebellion and stubbornness and disobedience mark their ways. And in contrast to that, the psalmist begins in verse 5, and follow with me as we read through verse 12, by marking out the steadfast love of God for His people. He says in verse 5, "...your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens." Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious, in verse 7, is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light, do we see light? In verse 10, O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. 
Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. In this contrast between human wickedness, rebellion, and depravity with the incomprehensible love of God, there are, there are three things that are said about, um, about the love of God. And, and you know, if I don't get through, I always have more to say than I have time to say. And, and I don't worry about balance and proportion and all those kinds of things. I just pack it in and wherever we need to stop tonight, we'll just put a caboose on it and we'll end right there. But if you notice in the reading of the text, at least from the English Standard Version, three times in the text, in verse 5, in verse 7, and then in verse 10, God's steadfast love is referenced. Now, you may have a translation. Uh, New American Standard Bible, I believe, um, New King James Version, uses the word loving kindness. If you have an NIV, get rid No. <laughs> if you have an NIV Bible, uh, it's nearly a, a Freudian slip there. If you have an NIV Bible, it's just going to use the word love. It's the great Old Testament Hebrew word kesed, kesed. It has the idea of covenant fidelity and covenant loyalty. It is a prescriptive love. It is bounded by God's relationship with His people. It is, it is not indiscriminate at all. It's not, God is not the father of the entire world. He's the creator of all. But He is the father specifically of those whom He has redeemed. He is the Father specifically of those whom the Holy Spirit has brought to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a rich word uh, denoting the idea of God's covenantal faithfulness, His loyalty and His mercy toward His people. Uh, Jeremiah in the book of Lamentation says that God's mercies are fresh in you every morning. His steadfast love toward us continues. It's the same idea in Psalm 103 in which psalmist says there in the, in the uh, I think the New King James Version, it uses the word mercy, but it's the same idea that, that as His mercy is high above the heavens, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. It is a rich, full, robust idea that far exceeds shrinking it down to the idea of unconditional. I'd suggest to you this evening, beginning in verse 5, that God's love is better than His steadfast love is better than unconditional because it is immeasurable. It cannot be measured by any earthly standards, by any human sources of management. It far exceeds our human horizons of comprehension. It is far better than unconditional because it is beyond comparison and it is beyond any scale on which we could weigh it. Far richer. The idea is contained in this idea that God's steadfast love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. The, the text gathers the idea of it extending to the heavens and His faithfulness to the clouds. It's a, it's a poetic way to say that as far as the eye could see, you would not be able to see beyond the love of God. As far as your life could carry you, you would not be able to run beyond the love of God. No matter where you go, as His people... You're enveloped in the love of God. And His fatherly love then knows no end because there's no measurement. There's no exhaustive means of contrasting and comparing it with anything earthly or human. There's an old hymn penned by the hymnist 
FM Lehman. You're probably familiar with it. Some of you are probably familiar with it. It's entitled, The Love of God. And the third verse soars in praise of the richness and vastness of God's love. The hymnist, uh, Lehman, says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though it stretched from sky to sky. You, you get the idea there? That if the oceans were filled with ink, and all of God's people were by trade scribes, and every stalk on earth was a, was a quill on which to inscribe the love of God, and though the heavens were a parchment, you would not be able then to, to articulate all the richness and vastness and deepness of the love of God, because it's beyond a measure. It's beyond human comparison. And, and yet it's not, listen, it's not a topic that's far off. It's not as if it's a theological topic around which you cannot fully grasp and get your minds, because the Scripture also teaches us elsewhere that God's love is personal. It's watching and it's caring. Uh, you remember undoubtedly going to baseball games, football games, basketball games, soccer games, piano recitals, school assemblies and programs and church events. And uh, when Melinda and I first married, we had the big massive camera. You know, the, the kind that Thomas Edison invented and it came right out of his uh, workshop. Uh, I felt like a, a, an ABC cameraman because the thing was so big compared to today. Now they've, they've shrunk them down to the hand. But I can go back and, and we've got Christmases recorded and, and uh, we've got birthday parties recorded and we've got piano recitals recorded. And, and uh, uh, when my, our son Ryan was playing football, I was there every game with the camera. And I could not enjoy the game because I had zeroed in on number 40. I didn't know anything else that was going on because I followed number 40. You know what I'm talking about. The first bike ride, the step, you've zeroed in on it. You're not looking at other kids on the playground. You're looking for every misstep, for every success, for every bobble, and for every injustice that you're ready to step out there and correct and rectify. Well, if that's true of us flawed parents that we are, how much truer? Is it of our Father, unsullied by sin, untainted by selfish admixture, who focuses His redemptive gaze upon us, who always holds us within His watchful care? A personal care so intense and so personal that Jesus could say of God that the very hairs of your head, His people, are all numbered. A love so personal and intense that the psalmist could say in Psalm 139 that the Lord knows are rising up and are sitting down, and He knows the word on our tongue before we ever speak it. And if we ascended to heaven, He's there. If we make our bed in Sheol, He's there. In other words, there's no place where we can go to exceed or escape the loving presence of a great and gracious God who is also our Father. Imagine the richness of God's love, motivated always by redemptive ends and redemptive interests. And what is true of Israel in the Old Testament? All that God said in redemptive terms in the Old Testament of Israel is certainly true by those of us who've been engrafted into the, the tree to use Paul's metaphor in Romans chapter 11. For example, he says of 
his people in Hosea, he refers to them as, My son, how can I give you up? He says of his covenant people in Isaiah 49, that I've engraved you in the palms of my hand. Now, the palms of God's hand are now pierced by nails, bearing the scars of our redemption. And so all that he says tenderly, redemptively to his Old Testament people is true by application and implication to us. And so God's love is better than unconditional. Far richer. Far more personal. Far more specific. Far more healing and transformative than anything that we would say of of earthly human love. His steadfast love is better than unconditional because it's active and intrusive. You know, in our... um, In our terminology, it's hard to separate, in our understanding rather, it's hard to separate the emotion of love from the commitment of love. And yet, Scripture really emphasizes the covenantal nature of love, not the emotive side of it. Husbands, love your wives. The word has the connotation of a covenantal commitment. Um, It's hard to separate the emotive aspect because it's so much of what we know and it's so much of what we feel. And, And I can remember growing up, my mom used to say, you know, Puppy love is real if you're a puppy. Puppy love is real if you're the puppy. But God's love is is not not just emotive. That is, it's not just feeling-oriented. It is a a covenantal commitment sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in which He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And His love actively pursues us, tracks us down, brings us from death to life, brings us from rebellion and unbelief to faith and repentance, engrafts us into the body of Christ, gives us the spirit of of the family in which our first words are Abba, Father. When, When I would take turns feeding our kids growing up, Melinda's now aware of this, but... I had this uh, sly, secretive plan in which while I was feeding them, I would say over and over, Dada, Dada. I was just determined that that was going to be the first the first little words that came out of their mouth. You know what the first cry of coming into the family of God is? Galatians 4, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons and daughters of God, and we say what? Abba, the cry of intimacy. Because God's love... His paternal, redemptive love has actively pursued us. He could have left us condemned in guilt and sin and all of its attending miseries. But He actively pursued us, suffered in our stead, and draws us to Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is merciful. Yes, a thousand times yes, He's merciful. But His mercy is also mighty. He's a benevolent God, yes, but His benevolence is not benign because God doggedly, ruggedly pursues us and drags us into the kingdom of God, subdues our stubborn, rebellious hearts and brings us into relationship with Himself. He welcomes, um, in in the terminology of Jesus in Luke 15, He welcomes prodigals home with a shout and a feast. He throws a party for his straying, erring sons and daughters. And all of heaven is summoned to rejoice with him over their repentance. He fights, the scripture says in Galatians 5, not only with us, 
but He fights in us, the Spirit warring with us to bring us into conformity and submission and obedience to His revealed will. And like a good parent, He cares enough to discipline us. You know, the Lord uses what we commonly refer to as means of grace. He uses the Word of God, and He uses prayer, and He uses the fellowship, the communion of saints, fellowship with God's people, and He uses the sacraments. On a Thursday evening, March the 20th, we're, we're going to see the gospel visibly displayed, that His body was broken for us, that His blood was poured out for us. And in every baptism, we have the promise of God and the seal of that promise visibly displayed. And yet when all of that fails, God knows exactly how to discipline us and correct us and bring us back into fellowship and relationship with Himself. His means are are infinite, but always motivated by His steadfast love. Verse 7 says that God's steadfast love is better because it's also intimate. It's not just that it extends to the heavens, and His faithfulness to the clouds. Verse 7 says that His steadfast love is also precious. That is, we've gone from this this immensity now to intimacy. It's, It's too immense to fully get a grip on it, but it's too personal to let it slip. The means of God's love for us then is firm in knowing. He knows us precisely and personally. And He endures with us in hope. His love perseveres with us in hope and that all that He's planned and intended to do for us in Christ, He will most surely bring to pass. He will not bail out on His people. He will not bail out on you. He will not bail out on your sons and daughters and your sons and daughters' sons and daughters because His truth endures to every generation. His steadfast love to a thousand generations. His love is firm and knowing and insightful and precise. And it endures with us in the hope and the power to bring or effect the changes that enable us to honor Him. He's never short or irritable, as I have so often been with my own children. He's never ill-tempered, as I have so often been with my own children. But His love is tough and fibrous and tenacious and persevering and enduring, and enduring, and enduring. Several years ago, and I say that with tongue-in-cheek facetiously, we were in Romans chapter 8 on Wednesday night. And um, at the end of Romans chapter 8, you know, there, there are a series of what John Stott in his commentary calls five unanswerable questions. Five unanswerable questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you can't answer that question. If God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up uh, with us for us all freely, will He not also graciously give us all things? In other words, if God gave up His Son, will He not also give you graciously everything that's necessary for life and godliness? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is He to condemn? And who shall separate us from the love of God and Christ and At the end of that chapter, if you're familiar with it, and I know that you are, Paul doesn't come up with every conceivable option, but he he has a a summative example of who shall 
separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then begins to think about it. We shall famine, persecution, nakedness, peril, sword, things in this life, things to come, height, depth. What will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ? Well, the one word answer with an exclamation point. Underlined is nothing. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. It is utterly redemptive and extended to those who do not deserve it. It comes as a gracious invitation. Verse 7 says it's extended to those who take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Love then is poured out at God's initiative. And I'm so grateful, not on the basis of merit or performance. Uh, Theologians historically referred to um, a love of benevolence and a love of complacency. Uh, I would translate it, or I I would put it in in these terms today, a, a because of love and an in spite of love. In other words, the Father loves the Son because the Son is infinitely worthy of the Father's love. The, the, the love between them is a, is a because of love, because they're infinitely worthy of the reciprocation of the relationship within the Trinity. But God's love for you and me is an in spite of love. It's not because of, but it's in spite of ourselves that God loves us. So forgiveness, and you and I know this, but forgiveness is not earned with a model life. It's not mercy that's bestowed because of merit, and it's not love given because we're lovely. It's given because God is pleased to take fallen human beings like us and to envelop us with His redemptive covenantal love and drag us into fellowship and relationship with Himself. Precious in verse 7 also has the idea of God's love being costly, transformative and changing. We know that, and I won't take time to go into all of that, but you know that the Lord loves you because God in Christ has perfectly satisfied His justice and His wrath. Huge controversy now, and the staff is getting ready to embark on a study of this whole idea of justification by grace through faith. Huge controversy being waged in some segments and some quarters of the church about that whole idea of justification being by grace through faith. But it's because of the obedience of Christ, His perfection, His merit, and then His suffering in our stead and in our place that we're brought into fellowship and relationship with this kind of love. But listen, the Lord doesn't leave you where He finds you. That's why it's better than unconditional. He loves you. And He loves me in our fallen state, but He doesn't leave us there. He begins this process of effecting the kinds of changes in us that will bring Him honor, that will reflect His grace, that will magnify His kindness and His goodness. Augustine once said, Love slays what we have been, that we may be what we were not. That's the very nature of the love of God. It is is His power at work in us to transform and change us from the inside out. So, is God's love better? His steadfast love better than unconditional? Well, I think so, because how would you ever begin to measure it? Were the oceans filled with ink, and every stalk on earth a quill, and every person a scribe, and the skies were parchment? You couldn't begin to calculate or measure it. You begin to comprehend something of it in the nature of Christ's work upon the cross for us. 
Is God's steadfast love better than unconditional? Oh, you bet it is because it's also intimate. It is personal. It is precise. It is caring. It is redemptive. And it is transformative. His love tracks you down, but He does not leave you where He finds you. He begins to affect all of these redemptive changes in your life. What a liberating truth that would have been for me. Standing in the batter's box in high school in Cleveland, Tennessee with runners on base, ducks on the pond. I tell you, I would have batted 500, I'm sure, if I had gone to the plate assured and confident that there was nothing in my life that ever would disillusion God about me. I love this quote of J.I. Packer. He says, There's tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion Him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself or quench His determination to bless me. You understand what he's saying? That God's love for you and for me is utterly realistic. He knows what we are. And it's not as if there's some fresh discovery that's going to cause him to say, boy, if I'd have never, if I'd have ever seen that or known that, I wouldn't have brought them into the family. Nothing in your life. How utterly freeing and liberating is that to you and me? One commentator said, this is true love to anyone to do the best for him we can. And this is what God does for those whom he loves. The very best that he can. His grace is ours to call us to faith and repentance and to save us in the fullest sense of meaning. His power is ours to protect and preserve us and bring us safely to His eternal glory and kingdom. His wisdom is ours through the Scriptures to guide us and to lead us, to instruct us and correct us. And His goodness surrounds us to comfort and heal us. And all of that more sealed to us by God's steadfast love. Ultimately, then God's steadfast love for you and me is nothing less than the gift of God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I would submit to you in closing this evening that this steadfast love, this compelling, persevering, as Jim sung this evening, the love that will not let you go. Think about that. The love that will not let you go becomes the compelling motive for holiness. It becomes the compelling motive for worship. It becomes the compelling motive for obedience. In the upper room, Jesus said to His disciples, um, If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. Love is not exactly synonymous with obedience there. Um, obedience is the effect of love. I know it's late. Now, it's a lot of stuff. But you get what I said? Love is the effect. Obedience, rather, is the effect of love. Love and obedience are not exactly equal in parallel there. In other words, it's my delight to obey Him as a response to His compelling love. And I demonstrate the practicality of my love by my obedience. These are the motives for living the Christian life. Not to merit anything, deserve anything, 
but as a response to the greatness and the graciousness of so great a Father, whose steadfast love never ceases, whose mercies never come to an end, who has pledged to you and I His steadfast love. Father, we thank You and we praise You for such richness and such profundity and such measureless grace that You've demonstrated to us in Your love for us. Um, I pray that somehow or another, by the work of Your Holy Spirit, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to embrace and and to be compelled in our responses to such a magnificent kind of love. We commit ourselves afresh to You tonight, and we do so because Jesus is indeed our Savior, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen.